0: everyone welcome to SLPs of color meet your candidate I'm Christina Navis. I'm one of the co-administrators for SLPs of color we're an inclusive community for students speech-language pathologists and audiologists of color and we have Dr. Deb Ross Wayne who is candidate for governance and public policy a vice presidency position with ASHA and we're going to ask her some questions today and um, get to learn a little bit about why she wants to be our vice president. So Deb, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. I also want to say too that uh, Dr. Ross Lane and I knew each other when I went to San Francisco State, Um, but I have not decided who I'm voting for yet. So there is no bias as much as I can, Um, but, Uh, Dr. Asleen, if you can um, just tell us a little bit about you and your experience and what brought you to running for this position. Well, thank you for inviting me, for for, uh, starters. Um, A little bit about
1: my background. I've been in the profession for over 35 years, so that tells you I'm a little bit on the mature side. Um, I started out in adult neuropathologies. I worked for a rehab company right out of graduate school. And then from there, I got my job of a lifetime. I was hired as the chief of speech pathology at UC Davis Med Center in Sacramento. And it was there that I really got my my hooks into the importance of advocating for our profession. Uh, because the person who preceded me was kind of winding down, and it was a one person department at the time. And I built that over a period of years to be a robust, vigorous program where we had interns from all over the US. But what I did was I realized that nursing knew nothing about us, neurosurgery knew nothing about us, neurology and rehab medicine, and those were the people, ENT, and those are the people that we worked with. Mm-hmm i made it my business to go and introduce myself to all of the chiefs of those departments i asked if we could participate in rounds and if we could participate and give presentations at their grand rounds so i was there for eight years and then i moved to sonoma county and i have been in private practice since all that time so my background is pretty diverse. I got into interprofessional practice and interprofessional education before it was even called that. Um, so it was really quite fun. Um, and so that's my clinical experience. I, I have done pediat, we do a lot of pediatrics right now. Um, so I've done it from little, little ones all the way to older folks. Um, with Kasha, I've been involved with Kasha. I'm a, a past president of Kasha. I volunteered in Kasha for many, many years. I did a lot of work with, with students and volunteers and built a lot of really essential programs that are still viable in, in Kasha today. With ASHA, I've been involved for many, many years. I'm the current chair of the Governmental Affairs and Public Policy uh, Committee. Mm-hmm. Um, our charge is to write the public policy agenda for ASHA. But I have, um, i worked on that committee. I'm on a, um, the Perspectives Editorial Review Board. I have worked on the foundation where I review scholarships. I served on legislative council on the executive um, committee. So I've done quite a bit of things. I've worked on um, the uh, Topic review committees for various topics for the ASHA convention. So I now I am find myself um, being nominated for vice president of governmental affairs and public policy. I've recently been involved with the National Academies of Practice, uh, NAP, which advises Congress on legislation about IPP and IPE, and I am the co-chair of the um, Policy Committee on that in that association and recently was um, admitted as Distinguished Scholar and Fellow of NAP. So I have quite a varied background and it's been and then there is one piece I've done a lot of publishing. I've written a lot of tests
0: um, and
1: contributed that to the professions
0: Great, thank you for for some of our followers who might not know what is IPP and IPE, interprofessional practice and interprofessional education. Mm-hmm. And why do you think it's so important for speech language pathologists to be involved in the interpractice um, conversations?
1: Well, we none of us can work in silos anymore, and when we're treating a client or a patient. We're we're really treating the whole family, and it's essential that I know what's going on, say, with social service or what's going on with nutrition or what the OTs have to say or what the psychologists have to say in the PTs. We have to form a plan that is cohesive and it's collaborative. We we cannot function in silos any longer. Mm -hmm. What I learned from others it makes me a better clinician. And it makes me a better resource when I'm collaborating with others and vice versa. Mm
0: -hmm. So I guess that brings me to my questions about why you're running for Vice President of Government Relations and Public Policy. So I know that recently, um, the policy on how speech language pathologists can bill um, was changed. And I'm wondering if you have any, um, any comments on the new system for um, Medicare.
1: Well, we, ASHA has been working on, on that piece for many, 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 many years. And so we're going to have to continue to work on that because things are changing, especially given our current situation and the telepractice. We have, and legislation, as you know, it moves very slowly. It involves many people, not just ASH, it involves you and me and all the members to have a voice to make our, our issues known and how important it is, because we are an important, we're an important profession. And as we were talking about, it is a human right, and we have to be able to bill for services. We can't have a limit on it. Communication is not 18 sessions and you're done. Communication is a huge piece. And depending upon the etiology and what we're working with, it involves a lot of education, meeting with your your legislators, talking to them frequently. Um, It brings us to the point that many people still don't know what we do. Mm -hmm. And I felt that way when I started in the profession. I was so excited because I thought, it'll be so different i'm going to i'm going to go out and i'm going to tell them what we do because they just didn't know and unfortunately a lot of people still have no idea about the scope of our practice the depth and the breadth of it mm-hmm. quite amazing so those are the the decision makers are the ones that we have to continually remind everybody knows what hearing loss is because a lot of the decision makers wear amplification they know but when you start talking about communication disorders and swallowing disorders and voice disorders, they have no idea. So we have a lot of work still to do on that front. And I feel that that's very important work that we all need to be responsible for. We are stewards of communication and it's up to each of us to contribute to that fund of information so that the decision makers make good informed decisions about
0: how funding is going to be allocated. Yes, I, I agree. In the school system, for example, um, we were just talking about Medi-Cal billing, which allows us to get reimbursed for services and for evaluation. And with the way of the world right now and our shelter in place because of COVID-19, some of the services that we're providing are not, being reimbursed and um that is definitely impacted by legislation and public policy so thank you um let me ask you some questions about your role as a leader so what experience do you have in engaging colleagues and students and how will you carry that in serving you in the national capacity as vice president of government relations and public policy
1: well, my leadership style—I'd I'd say there are two things about that. I—I'm a visionary leader, but I'm an empowering person. I want—I want to empower others to know that they have a voice and they can be part of a collective good. Um, historically, when I was president, I would say, "Okay, let's let's do this. Let's figure out how to get this done." So. We started um, a leadership academy in California so that we could mentor leaders. We started, um, I had appointed one of the board members to serve as the NISLA coordinator in California. So we got more NISLA members involved and engaged. We started a uh, public relations and marketing committee. We started an early intervention task force we start that, that was just sunsetted. We started. Um, we made changes legislatively to the Ed Code, so that's the kind of leader I am, and I'm doing that currently. I just and um, anybody
0: who knows me will tell me and get involved. And oh, I don't, Deb, Jean. Deb, I'm sorry the internet connection was so poor when you were answering that question. Um, I only got bits and pieces of it. I apologize. Um, I heard you talking about, um, your leadership style and, um, some programs that you implemented, but I'm sorry, some of it cut off. Would you be able to repeat yourself, please?
1: Well, I'll give that a go. <laughs> um, when I was, uh... When I was president of Kasha, I would see a need and I would just say, let's put a committee together. Let's put a task force together. Let's get this done. We've got to do it. And so during that time, um, I started a leadership committee that later turned into we started a leadership academy. We, I started a public relations and marketing committee so that we could get out and let consumers and professionals know who we are we started an early intervention task force and developed a really fine video that you can you can access on the cash website it's called 200 by 2 and it was developed for pediatricians and other physicians and healthcare providers about the importance of early intervention in kids so my my style is if i see something let's do it let's get it done and i don't see that changing if I'm vice president of governmental affairs and public policy. I see it, I see myself as collaborating with a lot of different boards, committees, and commissions, because we all, everything that we're doing,
0: everything, comes back to advocacy. Did that answer it, well? Yes, thank you. Yes, thank okay. you very much. So my next question has to do with this unpredictable time that we're in right now. And COVID-19 has drastically changed the landscape, I think for many speech language pathologists, many students as well. And I want to know how can you in your role and as a representative of our organization provide meaningful support to members as we navigate the unknowns of this pandemic?
1: Well, one of the biggest things I think is that we all have to really be flexible. None of us knew that, say, on March 17th, that was, we were next day going to be providing services through telepractice. So that's where we are right now. And we all have to be nimble and flexible. And what's the new word? We have to be able to pivot and make changes instantly. Um one of the biggest things I think for all of us is not knowing how long we are going to be in this situation. What we do know is it has affected every aspect of our life. My concern recently we were working on um, we had a face-to-face meeting via zoom with the um, public policy and governmental or the governmental affairs and public policy board and one of the things that we talked about is how how we can continue to practice at the top of our license with the constraints that are facing us right now. And that's the biggest thing. We are are all bound to one geographic place and we still need to be able to practice at the top of our license and identify those barriers. So I think what I can do is open discussions, bring people in, collaborate so that we can still empower every single practitioner to be able to do that and to live you know m- manage with the constraints that we have but still be forward thinking and ke- and at the end of the day it's always about service to the client service to the patient they're the ones that deserve the best and so we as an association have to work together and among the 10 vice presidents that Asha has collaborating so that we can make sure that everyone has access and they not only access but they have the skill set and just because we're doing telepractice it doesn't mean we've lost any of our skill set or we've lost any of our intelligence or our knowledge that has made us who we are so we have to make sure everybody understands that it's it's still a viable service the
0: way that we're doing it agree thank you my next question has to do, and it's slightly related, in that COVID-19, we know um, with the data that is available now that predominantly black and brown communities are most heavily hit by this virus. And in our profession, um, our ASHA demographics for members and affiliates show only 8% of speech pathologists are people of color. Right. Um, And I do see a correlation between um, access, access to services, access to education, um, to creating upwardly mobile um, students into clinicians. And I'm wondering in your position, how will you support the recruitment and retainment of diverse students and clinicians, but also thinking about the communities that we come from and the public policy related to
1: well, in, in the last, in the 2020 public policy agenda that we wrote, there was a strategic objective written specifically for recruitment, retret, retention, uh, matriculation of the diverse population. And so right now there are two objectives that the GAP department and the, and the GAPBB are, are working towards. One has to do with loan forgiveness, mm-hmm. but for um, recruiting minority students but going back I think that we have to figure out what draws someone into the profession anyway how do they learn about us and um, so when we think about that by the time a person is in college they may have already selected a career And it may not be speech pathology, only speech language pathology, because they don't know about it. Mm -hmm. So there are two things I think that influence that. One is experience and the other is influence. So experience is like, how did you, did you know anybody, whoever was a speech language pathologist or somebody who had speech language pathology services? And then influence, a lot of families influence their children's decision-making about what they're going to do for a career. So when we look at the top three professions, well, even the top five professions for women, the top number one is teaching. Right now, this is currently, um, that are viable, good, or the up-and-coming professions, I should say. One is teaching, dental hygiene, Nursing speech pathology. And everybody has had a teacher, everybody has been to the dentist, everybody has had a nurse in their life, but then the speech pathologist, who is that and what is it? So in that was like kind of a long shaggy dog answer to get to get, get to your question, but where I think we would be best putting together some sort of a campaign or uh strategy is to get to guidance counselors. Like in high school, don't wait for career fairs because a lot of people don't attend those. But by informing guidance counselors, so when they start advising students as freshmen, sophomore, juniors, or seniors in high school, they know what a speech language pathologist is because they're making recommendations. That's what I think would be very helpful is getting out into the communities and talking about with guidance counselors so that they can start that information because when I ask people how they get into the profession almost all the time they say well I had a family member or I just happened my volleyball coach was a speech pathology major and that's how I learned about it or in my case I belonged to a club in college and one of the persons in college So you see, we still have that groundwork, but I think if we could get to, and work with the other um, sections of ASHA who are doing outreach and who are in multicultural affairs, we can collaborate and get with the public school people, collaborate and say, okay, how can we reach the folks that are influencing those young students?
0: Great. Thank you. So we're almost running out of time, but I do have one last question and that is, what is your vision for this position and how will you execute that vision?
1: Well, execution is always kind of a, a moving target, but I can tell you that I have, I have four areas that I would like to address. One is manageable caseloads. And I know so many of my colleagues work in in the public schools and they are just overwhelmed by the amount of work. You work all day and then you go home and you do paperwork or Medicare bill or Medi-Cal billing at night and I mean or Medicaid and and it's just it's daunting. So manageable caseloads I think is is one. The second is um, equitable pay for services. We still have to deal with that. The third is um, educating consumers and other professionals about what we do, about our scope of practice. I mentioned that. And then for me, another one is, is grassroots advocacy. And as I mentioned earlier, we are all stewards of this profession. We, we are stewards of communication. We It's every member's responsibility to advocate, whether it's just a little bit or it's a whole bunch, but we have to do it. And that's how we'll get the job done. I started advocating the minute my feet hit the, the ground when I started as a CF and I just feel that advocacy is in my DNA and I can't help it. I just I we are an important profession and it's going to happen through collaboration. I can't do anything all by myself. I there's lots and lots of resources, a lot of colleagues, everybody wants to know what to do. We just have to work together to get it done.
0: Definitely. All right, everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Rustling. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, bye bye.